Saturday morning. And I, I like that and I get that. Uh, the writer of this particular book, as you know, is, never refers to himself by name. He's only known by his function or title, and so he's described as teacher or preacher. And right from the outset, right from the word go, he sets out his observations and his reflections on life in a fallen world. And here's what he says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. This is right at the very start. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, which does sound like a Monday morning thing. And as I said last Sunday, that can come across or sound at face value like the words of a skeptic, the words of a pessimist, or it can also be seen and heard as the comments of a realist, that from a certain perspective or without a particular understanding, life can often appear to lack purpose or meaning. And this teacher is and has been on a genuine search for meaning. And as he goes on after he says this right at the start of chapter one, he asks a number of kind of provocative questions, plus he's very honest about certain realities. And so, for example, if you're here last week, you'll remember this. He says things that life, like life is short, death is inevitable, generations come, generations go. He also says in those first 11 or first, yeah, first 11 verses that there's a weariness associated with life in this world. Contentment, he says, can be elusive. You're never satisfied. You're, you're always wanting to get more, to know more. The way he puts it, the eye never has enough of seeing and the ear never has enough of hearing. And he goes on, he says, it can feel at times like you're on a hamster wheel going round and round and round, just like the seasons. It's monotonous, so predictable. And then there's work. He asks the question, what can you actually, or what do you actually gain from all your hard labor? And then to top it all, right at the very end of that little section, he questions whether the next generation will remember any of us. It's pretty bleak. Or is it just real? Now, twice during those opening 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, we, we come across a phrase that appears 28 times in 12 chapters. It's a three-word phrase, under the sun. And as we said last week, there are two ways in. There are kind of two ways to understand that three-word term. At a very basic level, it simply means this is life in a fallen world. This is life on earth. This is life as it actually is. And so work is hard, and life is short, and the wind does blow north, and it does blow south. Round and round it goes, just the way life is. But another level of meaning to this little three-word phrase, maybe the deeper level of meaning, is that it refers to life apart from God. Life without God. Life from a purely human perspective. Life without an eternal understanding. Life under the sun is life exclusive of God. And that's a problem. That, that's a recipe for a lack of purpose and meaning. And this evening, as we read the next section, which runs from verse 12 of chapter one right through to the end of chapter two, the teacher talks about a whole bunch of things that people look to throw themselves into or go after in their search 
for meaning and contentment in this world under the sun. And he himself, he himself has headed down these various avenues in his research. And so what we're going to do this evening was we're going to spend a bit of time considering each avenue that he went down. Because the fact is, or the reality is, that there is nothing new under the sun. All of the following that we're about to look at are still go-tos for many people today in search of happiness. And as the teacher experiences each of these avenues, and as he reflects on each, he then offers certain thoughts and conclusions. And so first off, or first stop in his search, first avenue he goes down is study. It's the pursuit of wisdom. Look at verse 13 with me if you have it in front of you. I applied my mind to study. And so the teacher throws himself into the world of academia. He sets out to explore all that is done under the heavens is the way he puts it. He embarks on a pretty extensive course of learning and he's successful. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's able to say that he has increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before him. He's top of his class. Certificates line the walls of his study. Plus, he doesn't just apply himself to learning wisdom. He also studies madness and folly because he wants to expand his full understanding of all of life. And what's his conclusion? Look at verse 17. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, this is another one of those repetitive phrases. Under the sun appears 28 times. This particular phrase appears seven times, and most of the times that it appears are in this section that we're looking at tonight. Effectively, it just means it's a pretty fruitless endeavor. And if you look at the teacher's almost proverbial-like conclusion at the end, you see that all his study, all his learning, all his discovery leaves him what? It leaves him sad. His heart aches as much as the person who knows next to nothing. Here's what he says. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, that is a great verse to quote at your parents when you're young and you don't want to go to school and you don't want to study anymore, okay? So just if anyone's here and that fits, just learn that verse. But remember, and this is really important, the teacher is not saying, he's not advocating that learning and study is fruitless or pointless in and of itself. But what he is saying is this. If this is what you are doing, if this is what you're pinning your hopes on in order to find fulfillment and meaning, if this is where you hope to get your identity, if academic success equals contentment, then you're never going to be truly satisfied. There's going to be always annoying emptiness that there's got to be more than this. It's like a chasing after the wind. Well, the second thing the teacher tries or looks to, the second avenue he goes down is at the start of chapter two. If you look at it with me, it's pleasure and fun. As someone has said, he runs out of the university, heads for the club. He decides to test himself with pleasure, having a laugh, consuming wine, and embracing, it says he embraces folly. He decides to just have a bunch of fun with no real purpose in it. And what is his conclusion in verse 2 of chapter 2? His conclusion regarding pleasure and fun, meaningless. 
In terms of lasting satisfaction, it just doesn't deliver. If you're hoping to find contentment and meaning in entertainment and comedy or at the bottom of a bottle or in escaping reality, then you're going to be genuinely unfulfilled. Now again, please hear me. It's not that any or all of the above are necessarily wrong, bad, or they have no place in life. The issue is that if this is high, and this is where you pursue meaning and true happiness, then you are going to be disappointed time and time again. You're never going to be fulfilled, even if you do get a temporary relief or buzz. And in heading down the Pleasure Avenue, and he continues down the Pleasure Avenue in chapter 2, he decides to change track a bit. And he wonders, I wonder if becoming industrious and creative could be the way forward. Is, is this how I'm going to find a core diverse? Is this how I'm going to find meaning? And so he launches himself into building projects, grand designs wouldn't be in it. He constructs huge homes for himself, it says. He plants vineyards and forests. He does some landscape gardening. He installs parks and water features. Now, clearly, all of that would have taken an incredible amount of time. A whole amount of energy and investment. It would have consumed him, but he threw himself into it. He did it. And then next it says that he adds three other things, money, sex, and power. And so he says himself in verse 8 that he collected, he amassed great sums of silver and gold. He actually says he amasses the treasure, not just a king or provinces, but of many kings and many provinces. I mean, he's on the Forbes rich list, 450 BC. He surrounds himself then with beautiful concubines, mistresses. And immediately when he surrounds himself with these, he says, I have everything that a man desires. He's sexually active. And then par, verse nine, I became greater than all who ever lived in Jerusalem before me. And he goes on, anything I wanted, I took. Anything. You see, from a human perspective, and based on how many people today live, or long to live. This guy had everything. This guy was everything. He had fame. He had fortune. He had freedom to do whatever he wanted. He was living the dream. Living so many people's secret, if not expressed, dream. And yet, when he stands back and he surveys his empire, when he looks at his lifestyle, when he amasses his possessions and his wealth, what's his conclusion this time? Verse 11. But as I looked at everything, I had worked so hard to accomplish, accomplish. It was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Jim Carrey said something along the same lines not that long ago. He said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. It's profound. And I think the teacher would echo those words. He'd accumulated and accomplished so much and yet gained nothing. It all felt like building sandcastles on a beach. It's temporary, passing, ultimately futile. The last line of this verse, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. It just left me empty and unsatisfied. 
C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it like this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the probable explanation is that we're made for another world. Again, I think the teacher would echo those sentiments. He adventured down numerous avenues in search of satisfaction and meaning and contentment and always, always came up short, always left feeling there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more somewhere. There's got to be something more beyond the sun. But if we go back to the text, because as he makes another decision, he eventually returns to a fundamental reality that he keeps coming back to in this book. He keeps doubling back to a fundamental reality that he keeps raising. The decision he makes is to compare, this is further on in chapter two, the decision he makes now is to compare wisdom to foolishness. And he reckons that just as light is better than darkness, so wisdom is better than foolishness. And he goes on to say that the wise can see where they're going, whereas the foolish are walking in the dark. In other words, what he says is, listen, the wise clearly have an advantage in life. But then he confronts a nagging reality. He realizes that the same fate overtakes both kinds of people. Look at the end of verse 16. For the wise and the foolish both die. Throughout his lifelong experiment and ultimate meaning, heading down all those different avenues, the teacher had not been living like a fool. If you look at verse 9, he actually says, my wisdom never failed me. Even though he did embrace folly for a period of time, his wisdom never failed him, he said. But even so, he realizes, and this is to quote David Gibson, who I quoted last week, he realizes that living wisely will not stop him from being placed in a box in the ground, just like the village idiot. Harsh, but hey. And again, it's just like in chapter one, it's the reality of death that just keeps altering this teacher's perspective on any or all of life's achievements. Ian, Ian Proven in his commentary on this book says at this point, he says, this section of Ecclesiastes is a sobering account of the relentless anxiety of the materialist who lives under the shadow of unavoidable death. If this world is all there is, if there is only life under the sun, no eternity, no God, and if one out of one people die, in this all too short life, and many, many people die in way too short a time. But if this is all there is, he says, what is the point? What is the meaning? But the thing is, who wants to think like that? Who wants to think like that? Never mind face up to it or prepare for it. As Blaise Pascal argued, as men have not been able to cure death, misery, and ignorance, and they haven't. They have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. The default for most people today is, listen, let's not go there. Let's not talk about death and dying. Let's not face that reality. Let's keep distracted. Let's keep diverting our thinking. Whatever you do, do not consider your own mortality. Do not prepare for the inevitable. 
the reality is, if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we're pretending doesn't exist. The teacher knows it does exist, and it deeply affects him. He keeps coming back to it. Which is why in verse 17, after considering the fact that we all die, both the wise and the foolish, here's his conclusion now. So I came to hate life. Because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything's meaningless, like chasing after the wind. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that he hates all his hard work. And in verse 20, he says, I'm not even sure there's any value in my hard work. He wasn't the first to do that. He certainly wasn't and won't be the last to do it. But it's at this point that there's a major breakthrough. Or we see what some have described the first shaft of light that pierces the darkness of meaninglessness and chasing after the wind. Verse 24 is huge. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. All of a sudden, God comes into his life. God comes into the picture. There was a passing reference to God in chapter one, but it was a rather negative reference. But here and now, at the end of chapter two, God features positively in his thinking. And three times in the last three verses, he mentions God. And verse 24 literally changes everything. Now, some people think that at first glance, this sounds like, you know that nihilistic creed that says, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Verse 24 might sound like it, but it's nothing like it. And that's because of the final sentence. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Oh my goodness. As one commentator, I think it's David Gibson, so helpfully says, some say eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. The teacher says, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's what there is. God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own reward. That perspective, that understanding, that's more than a shaft of light. This is an invitation to help us to see God's good gifts right in front of us, day in and day out, and to realize, no, they're not an end in themselves. They are not what secures ultimate meaning or gain in this world, but they are expressions of the goodness of God. And we can receive them and we can enjoy them in that light. They point us to God. They remind us that there is a God. They take us beyond the sun. And once we realize that, once we realize that in God we live and breathe and have our being, then our understanding of life and death, our understanding of study and pleasure and fun and projects and money and power and sex, it all changes because we begin to see them afresh. We begin to see them as God sees them. We, get, we begin to embrace them as God intends us to embrace them as opposed to how self sees them and goes after them or lives for them. Listen again to that rhetorical question asked in verse 25. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from God? See, if you neglect or you dismiss God, then everything is meaningless. 
this is a watershed moment for the teacher. But as I've said, it's not the only reference to God at the end of chapter two. The teacher also says this in verse 26. God gives wisdom knowledge and God gives joy to those who please him. You see, so many people are striving for these things that the teacher tried. But what he discovers is, listen, these are not personal gains to make. These are gifts to receive by those who seek to please God and live for him. Under the sun, life apart from or without God will never provide true wisdom, knowledge, joy, happiness, or contentment. And there are countless people today living for self and without reference to God or any desire to please him. And based on the teacher's experience of going after all of those things in order to find meaning and contentment, what he would say to them is, listen, guys, you're wasting your time. You're chasing after the wind. And given that death's unavoidable, and one day all of us are gonna meet and stand before our maker and our creator and God, the importance and need to listen to the words of Ecclesiastes and the words of this teacher is vital. And I know there is a sense in which these words are particularly relevant to the unbeliever today who is living life entirely under the sun. But for those of us who are Christians, it is good to be reminded that these good things can become ends in themselves. I'll guarantee many of us can testify, and okay, I can. Many of us can testify or we know someone who is a believer but has lost focus and has, has got distracted by study, by pleasure, by fun, by sex, by money, by power. And we as believers need to be careful that we do not make them ends in themselves. They're good gifts from God to be enjoyed, but ultimately enjoyed under the sun with God in the picture. The teacher hasn't finished offloading and sharing his thoughts. There is so much more to come in this book. And so next week we, we arrive at his famous comments regarding time. But for tonight, for now, I hope that we might leave this place better place to enjoy God's good gifts. And with a renewed desire to please God because therein lies ultimate meaning an ultimate purpose, an ultimate contentment.